Welcome to the Two Rose Travel podcast. We're two sisters passionate about the impact of alcohol misuse on the drinker, families and society as a whole. In the last episode of Series 1, we'll be chatting about social norms, a topic very much at the heart of the work we do, discussing perceptions and judgments of alcohol use, the trivialisation and impact on society. Joining us in this debate is Kieran James. We can't wait to get stuck into this interview. This will be the last episode of the series. Series 2 starts on the 8th of December. Remember to subscribe to the podcast, share with anyone you can think can benefit and remember our Change Your Mind Facebook group if you need personal support and guidance. Here's the reading for today. The worst part about anything that's self-destructive is that it's so intimate. You become so close with your addictions and illness that leaving them behind is like killing the part of yourself that taught you how to survive. Today, the topic is around alcohol misuse in the workplace, the dangers, connection to mental health, and what companies can do to support staff. We'll be talking with Charlotte, who lives in Wales and has been supporting professionals to develop their practice within the substance misuse sector for the past 10 years. Charlotte is currently supporting Public Health Wales to develop the workforce framework for young offenders who use substances, many of which have lived with family alcohol misuse. Charlotte has a new business that focuses on raising awareness and supporting businesses to understand the impact of hidden harms and how they have a duty of care to support their employees, even the substance users. Paula and Joe are aware of the alcohol issues in the workplace and are very interested to know how companies manage this. Employees experience work pressures and often targets that they need to meet, as well as juggling home life and for some childcare. For some companies, they're just starting to introduce mental health first aiders, which is a welcome support for staff. Let's see what Charlotte has to say. Hi everyone, everyone. it's Jo here. Um, This week I have been, or I'm going to be, doing some training for mental health first aiders, which is a new thing to those of you that haven't heard about them. Um, They are pretty much like traditional first aiders, but they focus mainly on mental health. And companies, maybe bigger companies at the moment, are looking to get um, some trained people in their company so that staff feel better supported when it comes to mental health issues. Um, So I'm quite excited to be doing that this week. Um, And I'm also taking part in a discussion with all of the people involved in alcohol um, support services and things like that in the sort of Dorset area and um, with all the heads of of the various different organisations so it's kind of re-looking at everything that we do in terms of our local services and how we can best support people and maybe do hopefully do a better job than we're doing right now Um, so that's going to be really exciting and I can't wait to find out how that's all going to look and, and turn out so yeah so that's that's kind of my week this week so can't wait to get started. Hiya, it's Paula. Um, Yeah, I had uh, quite a full-on week last week, and uh, I had some supervision at the end at work, which um, I've never really realised how um, beneficial that is. I'd been struggling with a few little elements of work, um, 
trying to sort of digest and, and put things in place and then then able be, to be able to like talk to my boss was, was great um, just to run things by him and uh, you know put new things in practice and, and ask for some advice so that was really really helpful to me and uh, yeah it's all about talking and sharing it really so today we've got Charlotte with us so I'd like to welcome Charlotte and say um, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself Hi both. Thanks Paula. Thanks Joe. Um, I would always like to talk a little bit about myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> never shy. Um, so my name is Charlotte, as you said. I live down in Wales, specifically Cardiff, and I have been working within the drug and alcohol sector for nearly 20 years. I can't believe it's been 20 years. Um, and predominantly that work has been working with professionals who support people with drug or alcohol use or those family friends of, of drug and alcohol users. So when you're talking about training, sharing best practice and the importance of supervision, it's absolutely music to my ears. Um, and I currently have a project called Vita Orbis which is all about um, a new compass, a new start. That's what Vita Orbis means. And we're essentially working with professionals and the workplace to create safe, healthy and productive environments that really understand and support the impact of hidden harm and in particular um, alcohol misuse. So um, would you say that you work for particular size companies or that particular companies seem to be more interested in your services than others? Um, I think if I'm being entirely honest, it's a little bit of an uphill battle. And I think that's because um, it's a little bit where, like where the mental health area was maybe four or five years ago. And no organization wants to admit that they have drugs and alcohol or drug and alcohol users within their workforce, um, or that they don't want to admit that they've got people who have issues with that. And I think that whilst it's really, really widespread and the impact can be quite, um, yeah, the impact can be quite, easily seen within workplaces. I think it doesn't matter whether they're small, medium or large organisations, um, lots don't necessarily want to tackle it as an issue. So lots will have a policy and procedure, for example, but when we dig deep into looking at their culture, then we often see a real dichotomy between what's actually happening and what they often think is happening. Um, so a, a good example would be that lots of people have a zero tolerance to drug or alcohol use um, within their workforce. Yet actually, I can think of just a couple of companies where their managers might take them out for lunch and they'll have one or two pints with lunch and then go back to work um, or and then drive home. So yeah, so whilst on a bit of a mission to raise the awareness around it and help support organizations some of them are not so engaging with the process as others yeah what um strikes me listening to you there is um <clears throat> i guess exploring a little bit more in terms of you know you've got companies you know that don't want to admit they might have a drug and alcohol problem within their company but ultimately obviously maybe i'm looking at this really simplistically here um how does that how 
how can a company be responsible for whether their um, staff workforce are drinking? It's not, in my eyes, it's not a reflection on the company. The company are not the ones saying necessarily. I mean, they might be, there might be a bit, bit of a disconnect, like you've just said, in terms of taking them out for lunch for drinks and stuff, but they're ultimately not the ones that are, you know, <laughs> telling these people to drink or whatever. So I personally wouldn't see it as a bad reflection on the company. It's just they've got staff with problems and they could be any number of problems, whether that's mental health problems, drink problems, you know, disability problems. That's not a reflection on the company. It's nothing to do with the company to a point. Do you, do you understand what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And we completely and utterly agree. Um, I think it's really interesting. So our focus tends to work with professionals who um, don't necessarily want to admit that they've got drink or, or drug, drug issues. And, and when we look at the links between high performers, mental ill health and drug and alcohol use, the stats are really quite stark. Um, and, and one of the, the conversations we like to have with employers is they often have these really shiny, sparkly mental health strategies in place, but then they don't necessarily acknowledge that people will use alcohol, for example, to de-stress. So they're happy with these kind of high performance and the, um, the, the high productivity and those that are getting the results for their company. But often what comes with that is that pressure to perform, that overwhelm, um, maybe some stress or anxiety, the, the lack of um, kind of just self-care, so exhaustion. So th there's also that, that challenge for us that we know that alcohol is really quick, it's really easy, and it's ex an acceptable form of relaxation in our, in our society, in our community. You know, we use it to connect with people, we use it socially, it's quite cost effective. So we've got all these kind of positive reasons for why we almost encourage alcohol use to deal with work-related stress and overwhelm so for me you know the majority of people let's be fair 80 percent of those people who use alcohol and, and drugs will not have a problem with their use and, and that's the fact but there's going to be that 20 percent. and the way that we see it is that if we if workplaces have compassion which they're saying they have within their mental health or well-being strategies then actually that compassion needs to to push forward for those people who maybe have alcohol or drug issues as well. So, oh, this has really got me actually. So, <laughs> if, no, because if if okay, alcohol is acceptable. It's used to socialise. It's you. It you know. It's a part of everyday life. So, why is there so much shame and embarrassment with a company? to admit that maybe someone's got an alcohol problem. Al you know, and alcoholics are shamed and they feel shamed. And, yeah. and there's always that embarrassment. And, you know, th they're accepting mental health. Alcohol is free and legal and, uh, like you said, acceptable in our society. So why do they have so, you know, why is it shamed so much that, or hidden so much maybe, that, you know, people are struggling with addiction? I, I th I'm not even sure it's that there is definitely that stigma. So I think the stigma and the, the kind of prejudice comes from 
the users themselves not feeling like they can approach their employer to say that they have this this issue i think if they had a, a hip problem for example they possibly wouldn't have feel that there's any issues in saying that they've got a problem with their hip and they need some time off um so i think there's an element of the wider spread stigma that comes with having an alcohol issue and I, I personally i mean i've worked with it for, for a long time and i think that we if we have low level mental ill health i think that we're more like we we will go and approach hr or line manager to say that we're feeling a bit stressed but actually my conversations with those people who have um, a kind of diagnosed condition still don't feel in lots of cases that they can approach their employers. So the kind of stigma and prejudice is still very much there whilst we've made masses of steps. Um, I just think with alcohol that it's, employers don't like to necessarily admit it because they worry about how to deal with it. And, and I think that's the one of the things we talk a lot about is often especially if you're looking at some of your high performers in sales sales is a really classic example when we look at sales a lot of those high performers will um deliver the results for their staff for their for their organization but to de-stress they will use um substances to completely relax it's part and parcel of the culture to schmooze their clients and take them out to you know in wales it's very much when the Welsh rugby is on, let's take everyone for a, a corporate day out where there's lots of wine or beers and, and socialising to um, quote unquote get the deal. So I think there's this element of it just being very much acceptable. And if you've got an issue with that, I think lots of people just fear that they won't be able to um, keep their jobs. And from a HR perspective, you know, around 81% of HR directors of top um, organizations admitted that they just didn't feel they had the knowledge and skills to be able to effectively deal with staff. And I think that this is where, um, for me, the, the, the massive changes can, can happen because in attitude, really, and compassion and all those things. Because if I take my own experience, you know, when, when you're inexperienced and um, naive to a topic, not through any fault of your own you just haven't had exposure to it or whatever the reason um you know you do have a le le level of fear so you know employees probably do have that level of fear and the people with the addiction like you say are going to be shameful of their own addiction possibly because they feel scared about how the other person's going to react to them um and i think that when we educate people and become more educated about a topic we're less likely to feel awkward about it because if we know more we can understand it more and then we'll be able to hopefully respond in a better way because we'll know what that person's going through but when people aren't educated and they don't understand something they do like you say feel awkward or they don't know what to say or how to handle it and unfortunately then that doesn't help the person that's struggling exactly that and, and you know lots of lots of organizations have um support schemes there for the staff's well-being but actually what we find is that um, alcohol misuse tends to be another hidden layer behind, which is why we kind of term it hidden harms, because we know that the more entrenched behaviour is, the more 
um, shame, guilt, frustration, upset, self-anger people experience. And it becomes really hard to admit that, not only to ourselves, but then to other people. But also work is usually the last thing to fall apart. People need that structure. They need the finances. Um, work is what kind of holds the, the jigsaw together, if you like. And when that goes, then often people realise that that it's had such an impact. So when we see some of the issues, um, some of the, the signs of, of misuse within work, then often it's kind of hit a real breaking point. So for us, it's, it's about workplaces identifying way before that crisis of an alcohol issue. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, and I think that um, for, like I say, I think that the employers, you know, they do have this, this fear of knowing how to cope with it, what to do with it. And I guess the services you provide and that, you know, we provide a, to educate, you know, um, businesses so that they can be better informed and they can, um, you know, feel a bit more comfortable and confident in dealing with staff that might have an issue. Um, in terms of, you know, what would you say you predominantly know of the dangers of people misusing alcohol in the workplace? Um, I think you've got your kind of obvious risks. So we've got health and safety, that kind of thing. I was talking to a, a company not so long ago and a guy was so badly intoxicated on the job that he'd cut his finger off and hadn't even realised. So we've got oh those my really... God. I know, I know. So we've got those really obvious dangers that come with that health and safety risk. And obviously the legal expectations um, and responsibilities that employers have as well. For example, if you've got drivers... Um, but actually, for me, some of the dangers um, really involve things like mistakes from not concentrating. So if we look at a nurse, for example, who might give out the wrong meds, and we know within the caring industry that burnout is really something that um, happens quite frequently. So you've kind of got that, that emotional exhaustion, which has a knock-on effect with, with peers. And I always say to organizations, you need to really look at the dynamics within your teams and your groups because if you've got a quite a tight-knit um, colleague group who are starting to maybe splinter a little bit or you just sense that something's not quite right the chances are something isn't quite right and often colleagues are um, the first to notice in a workplace when something isn't happening and they'll cover for their friends. So it could be something like a sudden change in behavior. They're turning up ridiculously early, but also then turning up late. And maybe just those odd traits or different traits in character that actually, you know, often we're very good at hiding from managers and certainly very good at hiding from HR. So you've got these kind of mistakes that are happening. There's this burnout risk. But ultimately, for me, one of the biggest dangers um, within the industry is that reputational damage. So having somebody who's, you know, hiding their use, who then is intoxicated um, on the job. So again, I was talking to another organization who's um, one of their drivers was rolling a spliff, smoking the spliff whilst in the, co the company van and then going to do the job. So you've got that real really obvious reputational damage but also that um that intoxicated state which then brings these health and safety risks as well yeah yeah definitely i think that um you know like you say 
when somebody's um, intoxicated, they're going to make mistakes that they themselves may not well be aware of. But also there is this line of thought that for some people, um, you could argue drinking, using drugs, whatever, actually increases their performance and makes them do well. So then would you say that the workplace, if they were aware of it, is like, <laughs> you know, they're benefiting in a sense because these people are storming through the work, they're doing really well. And so yes. there's, you know, there's potentially resistance, you know, there in terms of the employer to be like, well, you know, it doesn't really impact us. It would impact us negatively, actually. if they, Yeah. This is one of the conversations I absolutely love to have with employers because especially when we talk about drug testing, um, because I believe that a lot of professions have it. Hospitality and catering is one classic example. Um, having worked within hospitality for a number of years, 20 plus years ago, I would say that a good proportion of those staff within the bars and nightclubs were fueling themselves with perhaps not alcohol at that point during shift, but certainly other chemicals. And I, I've seen it across the works that I've done front, you know, working one-on-one -on -one with people. I worked with a guy who made pallets and he was the best performer in his um, team. And the reason was because he would drop a gram of amphetamine before he went to his shift. And like drug testing. <laughs> He was definitely, they were going to lose their best performer. So one of the questions we always talk to people, and we do it from a slightly more serious angle, the fact that you can't discriminate. So if you drug test your staff and you, your best performer comes back with a positive test, you can't give them leeway if you haven't given leeway to the person who's not performing. It's, it's not... Um, dealing with alcohol misuse or drug misuse is not a carrot to beat people with and they have to be prepared for that because there's genuinely um I, exactly as you've just said there's a genuine risk that uh, that person could be their best performer and they just don't know it <laughs> so um how would you how do you do you work with um the employer and the employee together um when you go in, do you work with them both and try and resolve something or what, how do you go about that? Um, we offer a end-to-end -end support. So we've got various different things that we can support the organization with. And we do that because we really appreciate that one, one project won't fit all. So right. we want to be able to offer that flexibility. Um, we will predominantly work with the organization to help them deal with as much of the issues themselves and also just to kind of really identify what their limitations are so when they can't help because ultimately as a business you need to be profitable you need to be productive and you need to maintain that reputation so i do understand it from both both angles so whilst we're pushing for more compassion and um, at the end of the day a business is still a business so we will go in and support that organization to identify if there's um issues around substance misuse within their organization we can support the development of policies and procedures but we also offer a discretionary service um, and we wouldn't necessarily join those two up together because we really believe that we need to keep it discretionary um, however what we would do is signpost then um, staff members who um, 
could couldn't access a discretionary service for one one reason or another and we would make sure we signpost them to that effective most effective support as well and i think that's one of the benefits of having worked in in the industry is you you build good connections with people across the region so you know kind of who the better services are to support them um with their, their drug or alcohol issues yeah so so you're guiding more the employer of of their best the best way to attack the situation with their employees and yes our, our predominant work is working with the the work the, the workplace and the business themselves yeah um at this point i would like to throw in as we you know uh, my focus is mainly around the families and stuff yeah and so there is also the people that are supporting family members yeah. is still in employment that are drinking. So you've got members of staff that are going to be going into work that have also got stuff on their mind in terms of, you know, in a sense, they are a carer potentially for the drinker in their life. So, you know, how, I mean, do you cover that dynamic or how, what are your thoughts in and around that? Because obviously in terms of things like signs and symptoms of, you know, people that drink and people that are family members, they can often be the same, but you know, we've got lack of concentration, you know, maybe there's money worries because obviously yeah. if the drinker's spending loads of money, then they haven't got the money. So staff are going to be kind of distracted, you know, in their thinking. Um, so what are your thoughts around that? I absolutely think that family members get the raw deal. <laughs> I think they get the, um, all the stress and all the anxiety and all that pressure to keep everything together whilst also often feeling heartbroken because the person that they love, they can see often self-destructing. Yeah. Um, I would say that whilst I don't personally work with family members um, themselves, we are very, very cautious to make sure the family members have the support that they need as well. Because ultimately, let's be fair, services generally are nine to five. We see um, clients maybe one hour, if they're lucky, a week in mainstream services. So it's the family members that have to pick up the pieces. Mm. And it isn't just a wife or, um, or a husband or a partner. Mm. It's mum, dad, mm. children, the ripple effect mm. of somebody's drug and alcohol use is huge and far far reaching which i don't think people really appreciate at all so yeah as, as i said whilst we wouldn't personally as a service work with the family members um, it is something that's always at the front of our mind not just from a safeguarding perspective but just really from a compassionate aspect as well to make sure that they do have some form of support there um, to be able to support their loved one so is that like the worker who is struggling with, say, an alcoholic at home and they went to their HR and said, look, I've, I've got this stuff going on at home. Would you intervene on that? Yeah, I mean, I think so. We, we've, the reason we've put in our kind of our mission statement talks about supporting the impact of hidden harms. And whilst we're very much around um, drug and alcohol support, it, it, that, that hidden harms barrier does incorporate other aspects of it. So, so, for example, we see high rates of substance misuse, mental ill health or substance misuse and domestic abuse, for example. And carers, carers' responsibilities are vastly underestimated 
and probably vastly under-respected, if I'm being entirely honest. I don't think, unless you've been in that situation, you can appreciate um, how emotionally draining that role within a family can be. And um, so we would definitely work with those, the, those employers to try and be more understanding of it. And, and we often would just liken it to um, a carer of somebody who had cancer, but because there is this stigma or prejudice attached attached to drug and alcohol misuse we you know you you guys will know yourself you often get that well it's self-inflicted yeah um, actually it's not quite as simple as that and i think it's that, a really um, complex where, process yeah. and that, that person... sorry I, I was just gonna say that i think that one of the you know for like you mentioned about families that look after someone that maybe you have cancer or something like that. And I think for the most part, the families struggle because, um, because of the carnage that gets caused, you know, yeah. the, the implications of their actions is not like any other illness. You know, if you yeah. have diabetes or if you have cancer or if you have some sort of other, you know, <laughs> unfortunately in most cases, the, the impact is nowhere near the same as somebody that mis misuses drugs and alcohol. Um, and so in a sense, we're, well, I don't know whether the word expecting is right, but it, it happens. We're, you know, family members are having to cope with something that they quite frankly are not qualified to deal with. Um, yeah. and, 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 and yet not getting the support to help them with that. It, it, exactly that. I, I think lots of, you know, one of the, some of the work that we do when we talk to commissioners about services is that services on the whole are really great at dealing with crisis, but what we're not so good at is dealing with the ongoing support. And, and it's a bit of a postcode lottery across the UK. So in certain areas, it might be better than others because somebody's spotted that gap and put funding in, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but actually, throughout that, that consistent lack of support is family support. And you, I completely agree with you. The skills, the patience, the emotional resilience that family members need to live with the chaos day in, day out isn't likened. It can't really be likened to cancer. However, what we're saying is that if, if you're prepared to support a loved one who's got somebody, a family member with cancer, then... The, the person who's supporting the drug alcohol user has kind of, not I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to put a number, but 10 times more chaos to deal with at home. So you have to show that same compassion to that person who's got a loved one, even if your belief is, well, her husband is, is using and that's self-inflicted. The, the point is that that employee who's looking after a loved one still needs that same sensitivity as somebody who's looking after a loved one with cancer yeah so um so say like an employer has um has discovered someone's using or drinking um what's the kind of procedure that that would be put in place for that person um, I, I think part of it is that we need to go go back a few steps and look at the culture from the off. So, you know, I think it's really, employers need to be really open and honest with the culture that they have created within that organisation. And I'm always really aware that we sound 
like, you know, we're really negative around alcohol. And I'm not particularly negative around alcohol, but my point is that, you know, we used the example earlier of those, those team managers who take their staff out for a, a couple of drinks at lunchtime on a Friday. To some, that culture within that organization is acceptable, but that means that there's a kind of blurred boundary between somebody who then comes in and is maybe a little intoxicated at a different part of the day. And I know that's an open conversation that, you know, we probably could talk for hours on as well. But ultimately, one of the things that we talk about is making sure you have that, that really clear message to employers so they know um, where they stand with that. I think the biggest thing for me is that they, if somebody does come forward or they identify that somebody has been intoxicated, that they deal with it with some sensitivity. We know that with the right support, um, around 60% of employers will return back to that workplace with increased loyalty after they finish their treatment. So we very much like to look at it from a productivity and a profitability aspect. And lots of organizations have, you know, they've put, lots and lots of resources whether that's time resources whether that's financial resources into that employer often so to lose that talented member of staff is always a shame so by by being compassionate and being proactive with the support in the long run they should be able to retain that staff member um, <laughs> like in the uh, in years ago do you know what i mean if you got caught drinking on the job you'd be fired no questions asked so what I was wanting to know is, is um, you know, is there a procedure that the workplace have to follow before getting maybe discharging that person from work? I think it will depend on the role. So if they're in a role, so for example, if you're dealing with somebody who's driving and they're caught intoxicated, then yeah, yeah, I think it's pretty clear cut. If it's something, for example, in a call centre, then I think that would depend on your culture and what you're prepared to to stand for. Yeah. Personally, I would love to still see them give that compassion and deal with it from a well-being perspective. Yeah, like if somebody had. Um, you know, a, an anxiety attack or a panic attack within work, um, but that's that's not necessarily for for us in Vita Orbis to decide. What we do is just give people, organisations, the information for them to really suss out what they want that culture to be. We would love to see more of a collective responsibility for organisations to look at the, the wider well-being and incorporate substance misuse within to that. Um, rather than it just be a you come into work intoxicated and you're fired yeah I think so in terms of you know for the listeners like what uh we know some of the signs and symptoms but what do you think are the for employers are some of the signs and symptoms that they you know someone that is misusing alcohol and I'm not talking about people that are dependent necessarily because there's a whole raft of things you know I sometimes think we're just focusing on people that might be alcohol dependent but you know there are still people that are misusing alcohol whether that's during the work time or whether it's binge drinking or whatever but it's always about the impact you know how is this impacting on the person so if someone is misusing alcohol how does that look to an employer if they're you know how would they notice what sort of things would they see yeah, I think it's a really interesting question, especially when we focus in on alcohol, because if we look at um, the kind of data and, and the data that we see is obviously very um, limited as well, because for most professionals, they won't admit that they drink before, during or after work. So our, where we get our stats makes it a very blurred picture. And the reality is that 
for the majority of people who drink alcohol, they will be very high functioning. They won't necessarily acknowledge that they drink over um, those kinds of recommended or healthy limits. So when it when it comes to identifying it within the workplace, it can become slightly more problematic. So you've got the usual signs and symptoms. So if they smell of um, kind of fresh or stale alcohol, for example, if they look intoxicated, I mean, you know, 99% of the population will have, will be able to acknowledge somebody who is drunk um, or maybe severely hungover um, and, and just some of the you can listen to some of the sounds if there's slurred speech that kind of thing so you've got those really obvious signs of maybe somebody's intoxicated but some of the other changes that staff and, and it is usually staff that will notice before management or um, before HR for example and, and really it's about is there been a real sudden change in character or behavior yeah. is there something that's new something that is out of character for your colleague or friend and uh, your team team member often people will turn up late and if they turn up late they might look disheveled and um, but also on the flip side of that there might be people who turn up super early and stay super late so they feel like they're being overly obvious that they catching up with with something so we talk about kind of absenteeism quite a lot but actually that presenteeism so being there but not being very productive is something to look out for as well people who are um, have increased fatigue so appear tired all the time maybe just a little bit erratic or they're showing kind of odd traits that you wouldn't normally expect to see they might can become more distant so instead of being very much part of that team, they've stepped back and distanced themselves a little bit more, maybe a bit more distracted. Um, and then talking about one of the things that we've noticed over the last certainly six months in particular is people often talk about their substances and say that they were using to, to cover their pain, whether that was a physical pain um, or whether that was a, a kind of emotional pain. So it's just noticing those kind of comments that people might make if they talk about, you know, God, I had two bottles of wine last night, not, not one, or just those often things that might just be said in, in humor and jest. Yeah. So people will become much more secretive the more problematic they identify it for themselves. But actually, because in general it is seen as more of a socially acceptable substance to use, then often they'll, they might say things in jest. And it's really difficult to say because we see it. But for the, the kind of average person who doesn't work within it, um, these symptoms could be very generic and could, of course, be something completely outside of alcohol use as well. So it isn't easy to spot within the workplace. Yeah, I think that, like you say, the people like us that deal with it all the time, we can sort of see it a mile away. Um, we can certainly smell it usually. It's that real sort of toxic chemical sort of smell. Um, and it just comes out of their pores if they're really heavy <laughs> drinkers. Um, but yeah, um, I think like Paula was saying about the sort of dis disheveled look, um, yeah, a bit unkept, maybe didn't bother having a shave, hasn't yeah. bothered doing their hair, maybe isn't as smart as they used to be. Yeah. Um, and maybe being um, overzealous with excuses. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. fabricating all sorts of stuff that you're really not quite sure if that's true or not. 
Yeah, and I, I think when you talk to people, whether that's friends or family, they often will say, I knew something was wrong. Yeah. So people don't trust their gut instinct. And when we care about people, we will see something before they will see it. Yeah. And, and it's sometimes having the patience that, to, to wait until they identify it themselves. And sometimes it's having to intervene in a really, um, in a really big way. But actually with alcohol, you know, nobody sets out to have a problem with alcohol. Nobody says in five years time, I'm going to be an alcoholic. Yeah. They just don't. And it creeps up on them. It's, it's a slow process. Yeah. And for the majority of people I speak to, they are professionals. They are people who just couldn't deal with the stress or just felt that they needed to unwind and they knew that alcohol would do it really quickly and we can't get away from that and until that person sees that this is having a more negative impact on their life and it's very hard to um, be able to get them to reduce or stop that use. Yeah. Well, as a recovering addict myself, you know, I thought I was very clever for quite a long time, but um, obviously I've found out since I wasn't that clever. <laughs> we very, really are. <laughs> it does make me laugh when she says that because, um, yeah, I mean, we'd been through it before with, with my dad, you know, in, in his sort of drinking. So you kind of know the signs and... Um, yeah, when she sort of thought she was being really clever, I just was, <laughs> I just found it really funny because it was so blatantly obvious to me, um, but not obviously to her. She, you know, they often think they know best, and that they know that that unfortunately is not always the case. <laughs> yeah, I was I was talking actually to um, a, a couple, and they came in and got they had a new a newborn baby and some some other children, and his drinking has kind of increased over the last six months, twelve months. And the, the kind of oh, just some of the comments she was making and um, the, the pressure she was putting on him to make the changes was exasperating his guilt, which was making him drink more. So we kind of just talked about that process of, you know, he's. He's, he's asking for help he's looking to make some changes he's acknowledged that there's something going on um, and that's the first step but it's it is just the first step and that's why I really feel for family members because they're the ones that have to be patient and live with that, that self-destruction on a daily basis it's, it's so much easier for workers to be able to step back and go all right, okay, I saw Joe Bloggs last week, but this week, you know, I've got to move on now to the next person. So whilst there is that risk of kind of compassion fatigue happening within, within professionals, actually it is the family members. They're the ones who have to show the most resilience and um, patience. Yeah, and I think for, for a lot of them, if they haven't, you know, in most most well no stop that that's not true i'm just thinking that some of the some of the people that have experienced someone else's drinking may have experienced you know if they're a partner to somebody that's drinking they may also be the child of an alcoholic um so you know they've experienced all of this you know before and unfortunately if they haven't had the right support then you know they tend to sort of attract those sort of people and i think that you know we're expecting people to sort of support the drinker and be compassionate and all that but if they don't have that education if they haven't got um someone to explain to them what's going on it's really hard for them to kind of 
you know find that compassion and it is really hard to get that compassion when you're in the midst of it all because it's so terribly destructive and you know it's it's just I just really obviously I've been there myself and I just really am very passionate about helping the family members just because I know how hard it can be and 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 to try and do it by yourself and to manage it is is near impossible to be honest with you I think you try it for quite a long time until you run out of steam then you realize you can't do it on your own anymore and then you you get the support you want I think there's so many different emotions as well because you've still got that love that's there because that's not gone you've got the the kind of wistfulness and remembrance of the person that you originally fell in love with you've got the anger that they can't move forward or you're not enough there's that feelings then of guilt and shame of have, have I done something wrong so they they themselves family members are having to deal with all these different kind of emotions whilst trying to be patient and supportive when they can and hold um, down a job <laughs> you know hold down a job or, or a family or you know what it, whatever it is and I think that's the you know I would say probably there's two common themes I've seen in in the 20 years I've been working in in sector the two common themes I see with people is the lack of self self-worth mm. is usually one of them regardless of whether they're high performing you know seven figure business owners or whether they're sadly on the streets with no job um and, and homeless the lack of self-worth from wherever that's come is one and two is just that um I've completely forgotten. (laughs) You're on a roll there. But I think that self-worth is true for the drinker and for the family, isn't it? And the the parallels between the two are uncanny. Um, So the issues that the drinker has with the shame and the blame and guilt and the family members experience those emotions and feelings as well for different reasons. So, you know, it's they're both suffering in different ways for different reasons so but in terms we're gonna have to sort of close up soon so but in terms of employers what would you either like to see or some advice that you can give employers that may not have even thought about you know the alcohol misuse in their company at the moment what would you sort of suggest to them so there's a couple of things really i think there's a, a massive push at the moment for companies to look at their mental health strategies it seems to be kind of the buzzword in the in the business industry at the moment and i think for me it's just to acknowledge that there is massive links um, between high performing teams mental ill health and substance use whether that's alcohol or drugs and Um, one of the things that I feel really passionately about is that if you do want to improve your productivity and performance um, and ultimately maintain that reputation to kind of build that income and and the bottom line, you really have to be open and honest about it and have that open and honest culture. I would love to see organizations take more collective responsibility for the well-being of their staff and to not just pass it on to an employee assist program that realize that it isn't a tick box situation that it's a holistic spectrum of approach so they need to have the right knowledge the right skills and that right attitude to really make sure they can 
offer the best solutions for this staff yeah i think um, having um the you know those policies and procedures and all that in place is kind of you know the whole tick boxing you just said is kind of pointless if you're not going to make sure the culture and everything you know <laughs> is going to back that up and so it's congruent otherwise what's the point you're like the whole tick box exercises really gets on my nerves um and people are more interested in stats than actually doing good and helping people sometimes and um and i feel very frustrated by that because you know it's all about people and their businesses would not run without them and there's reality at the end of the day you know we can all look at the paperwork and and think this is what should and should be done but there's reality and reality can be very very different exactly that and that's why we we feel that you know you need to be working with specialists around this area if you think that you've got um, a bullying culture you need to be got a bullion um who understands the nature of bullying if you've got um more than one or two staff who've got domestic abuse um going on in their lives you need to be bringing in specialists there and i feel it's exactly the same with with drug and alcohol use so using those specialists to get the most effective help and advice so that you really are getting giving best practice Perfect. Thank you so much, Charlotte. It's been brilliant. I know we could talk forever about this topic. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I forgot. <laughs> we're all very passionate about it. So, um, but it's been really good to have you on and lots of knowledge and um, great tips and things that you've shared. So thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for having me both as well. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you, Charlotte. It's been great. It's um, a real debatable one. I love a debate. <laughs> and uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. So thanks ever so much. Thank you both.